Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by our Technical Product Manager, Dr. Leslie Owens, our Stability Assessment Lab Assistant, Madeline Hughes, and our Chief Technical Officer, Dr. Brian Alexander. We're going to continue with a deep dive in one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 14 on Accuracy, Precision, Mean, and Standard Deviation. If you'd like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. All right, so let's go ahead and start talking about accuracy and errors. Leslie, Paul threw out you know, some definitions from the VIM. Would you give us a little bit of a rundown of what the VIM is and you know, what does that mean? Yeah, the VIM is such a great resource for any terminology that you use in the ISO documents. So 17034, 17025. So it's going to go through and it's going to talk about, you know, in practical terms, what these these things actually are. So kind of the things that are in there are, you know, systematic errors and random errors. So systematic errors are your determinant errors. So you can put an actual value on these. And the indeterminate or random errors are going to be things that just exist in your measurement. And you can't really quantify the amount to those. Got you. I don't know, Paul mentioned, you know, like the accuracy being how close something is to the true value, but that true value is really difficult to put a real number on. Brian, what would you think on if someone asked you to find the true value of something? Well, I guess that I would ask them another question as well, which would be how close do you need that estimate of the true value to be? And I I think it is good to understand that when somebody reports a data point or a measurement result that... It really is just an estimate. If somebody wants to know the total amount of iron in a solution, I mean, you can't count every iron atom in that solution. So fundamentally what we're providing uh, when somebody says, what is the answer or what is the result of your measurement? You're really providing just an estimate of what you think uh, is the true value. And hopefully it's your best estimate of the true value. Yeah, and adding to that, you know, I feel like uncertainty is a huge component. We're circling around this topic of uncertainty. We just haven't gotten there yet. But basically, any sort of measurement, anything that you report without an uncertainty is just going to be a number, right? Everything's going to have to have an uncertainty uh, component to it. And, you know, thinking about accuracy and precision, we get to this uncertainty component. Yeah, one thing about that I always thought was interesting was I did a lot of work with ICPMS on measuring some difficult samples. And on a good day, the machine might have a, a, you know, a relative uncertainty of a few percent. If I was, you know, this would be the standard deviation of the measurement. But when I was talking to people who were asking for what the data uh, actually came out to be, they would pigeonhole me and say, okay, are you saying is it 99 parts per million or is it 99 and a half parts per million? And, and I would go back and say, please understand that there's about a 5% error on the measurement. So we're in the ballpark, but I can't tell you if there's really any difference between 99 or 99 and a half. And so kind of keeping that big picture in your head when you're talking about these values was super helpful for me. Perfect. Maddie, you kind of have a unique perspective as you know you are lab assistant but you're still in college 
what are they, you know, teaching? It's been a long time since Brian Leslie and I have been in a classroom. Um, so what are they teaching these days about, you know, accuracy and, and, and errors, you know, the uh, systematic versus random errors? They're definitely doing a lot more focus on that now. Uh, when we started out in college, they didn't have a super in-depth look into how systematic versus random and accuracy and precision, all of that. But once you start getting into the more technical um, labs, like, for example, I just took a physical chemistry lab. We had a whole lecture on the difference between accuracy and precision and how to reduce the amount of air that comes with them. And basically just did a whole deep dive into how statistics works within labs. So it's definitely gotten more specific as we go through our labs at Virginia Tech. Perfect. Yeah, woohoo, go educational system. <laughs> awesome. Well, you brought up precision, and that's actually our next topic. So I think uh, a lot of us are familiar with that classic, you know, accuracy versus precision and the target. And, you know, something can be precise, but it's off the middle of the target, but all the, you know, all the arrows or darts or whatever are clumped together. I think that's a, a pretty useful, you know, tool to sort of translate that, that those terms across. I'll throw it out to the group. What do you guys think of precision and sort of what are some some good ways to improve it? Yeah, so I, you know, we talk about advances in the classroom on accuracy and precision, but you can't get away from that classic dartboard mm-hmm. example. So, you know, improving precision is, you know, thinking about the number of measurements you're taking. That's one way to start improving precision. And, you know, just being aware of where error could be. In your measurement. So, you know, having a robust error budget going into your analysis, you know, and looking at where you could start reducing the impact of your error and start getting a better precision to your measurement. Yeah. And for my own experience, one of the big advantages or big leaps forward was when I stopped using volumetric dilutions and started using gravimetric preparations for all the solutions. And what it really did was it clarified where I had errors and I just was not able to determine them or see them. And some other little tips and tricks, at least for ICP measurements, were simple things like don't pump, you know, uh, use free flow aspiration of your sample. And things like that, until you've done it and you've seen the data and you really can get an idea of how it helps your final results, it can be difficult to understand how you can improve precision. But We have a lot of information on our website, and those are just a a few things that really helped me out when I was learning. Definitely. And I know, Brian, you mentioned RSDs earlier, and I think it's something that as we get new folks in our quality control department as they train on ICP OES versus ICP mass spec, there is a big difference in what a good RSD is for an OES versus a mass spec, right? Yeah. When I really cut my teeth with ICP, it was mostly on the mass spec side, and Despite all my attempts, I was really happy if I could get an RSD of plus or minus 2%. And what was interesting was that it really was also a function of the element, the mass range I was in, the type of samples I was dealing with. So there are a lot of factors that affected that. But when I came to Inorganic Ventures, I was blown away by all the data that Paul had been able to develop over the years and put in place processes where we could, with an optical emission system, routinely get precisions of less than half a percent. And that was something that I was not used to. So for the broader group who has some more experience with optical emission techniques, I'd be curious to hear any thoughts you might have on how we're able to achieve those really good RSDs using the ICP OES. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, just sort of piggybacking off of that, I think having your system really well maintained is critical. We harp on that a lot with, you know, maintenance of your instrument. It's one of our most popular courses when we host ICP conferences. We always talk about maintenance, but having an instrument that is really cleaned well, and honestly, when you put everything together, making sure your connections are the right fitting, they're fitting correctly, they're, you know, at the proper tightness, um, can have a big impact on your RSDs. And I think that's part of how we're able to achieve such good RSDs is we have a really good maintenance system in place. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. I was not a very good ICP shepherd. I tended to run the machines very roughly and wasn't very nice to them. So that's a fantastic point. Yeah. All right, let's talk about me next. So um, Paul mentioned in this this part of the chapter, really talking about replicates and how do you exclude a replicant, the Q test, that sort of thing. Leslie, as our resident statistician, I want to throw your thoughts over on the Q test and mean. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so in general, you know, the ISO guides um, or former guide 17034 now afforded you the ability to think of everything in terms of a Gaussian distribution. So this really helps when you think about mean, right? So mean is that bell-shaped curve. Mean is the middle of that bell-shaped curve. So, you know, what you're looking at is symmetrical about the mean, and it's spaced out according to the standard deviation. So basically, for Q-test, you're trying to figure out, does your data point in question, so it's a high point or a low point, fit within this um, distribution? So basically, what you're trying to look at is you're calculating a value called Q, and it's basically you're taking your point in question, the outlier, and you're subtracting the nearest neighbor. So take this as the absolute value, in case you get a negative um, number, and you're dividing by the range. So this range for the Q test includes your point in question. Okay, so then you're going to compare that to what we call a critical value. So Paul gives a table in the guide, but there's also multitudes. Like if you want something better than 96% or better than 99%, go to the table, find the Q value that works for you. So you're going to make a comparison of that Q value you've calculated with the range, your outlier, nearest neighbor, and comparing to the Q critical value, you're going to determine whether you reject that data point, you say it's not part of your data set, or you accept it as part of your data set. So if your calculated value is greater than your critical value, you're going to reject the data point. So this gives you statistical ammunition to throw out a data point in your data set. And this is the only way you do it. You don't do it willy-nilly just because you think it doesn't make sense. And the example Paul gives, you know, 981 is relatively close to the data set, but you got a gut feeling that it's wrong, but do the math and give yourself that ammunition to statistically defend your rejection of a data point. I love the term statistical ammunition. Haven't heard that yet, Leslie. That's great. <laughs> I think another question that comes out of this is, you know, when we talk about the number of replicates, I think having an idea of how many replicates are you actually running? Because you might run the sample multiple times, but the instrument is also taking multiple replicates. So, you know, you might run something twice on your ICP, but it's really taking five replicates per reading. What does that give you? Are you actually having two measurements or is it 10? I'll throw that to the gr- out to the group. What do you guys think? Well, I'll jump in and just say that the software that I was using would not allow me to really get the statistics behind some of those replicates that are buried in the final result. And my data points were generally 
a gross overall average of about 60 separate measurements. But at best, I could get kind of the statistics on essentially a group of five. So there'd be 12 replicates in kind of a series of five groups. And Mike, I think it's a fantastic question. To me, it was almost philosophical. Uh, You know, gathering more data, I would say more data is always better, but you have to balance that against the machine time, uh, what you're trying to achieve. And unfortunately, just the software would not let me go down and do a really full, robust statistical evaluation on every single data point. And I'm just curious how everybody else feels about that or if you have a different take on it. Yeah, I feel like the answer is 10. (laughs) It's an ensemble of everything you run through. I think, you know, if you think it's just two, then I think you're setting yourself a little short on, um, you know, understanding what's actually going on in your instrument and taking full advantage of the number of replicates you can get in quickly. And, you know, Brian makes a really great point. You know, I'm over here as a purist saying take as many measurements as you can, but you have to balance that against the business side of what we do. Um, You know, for you guys in academia, you can take all the measurements you want. But, you know, there is a a finesse. Balancing, taking all the measurements you can versus getting an answer that's good enough and getting out the door. And I guess the only thing I might add to that is that I was able to troubleshoot some issues related to sample uptake timings by kind of tweaking how you set up your replicates. And there were times where the data didn't make any sense, but by actually taking more measurements that had fewer data kind of behind them, I was able to troubleshoot things like my sample uptake times were not appropriate. And sometimes your creative use of the machine settings can help you troubleshoot some of these pesky problems. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I think no matter how you do it, just keep consistent. That would be my advice is if you call, you know, in that example I threw out, if you call it two or 10, you decide what you want to call it, but always call it that, especially if you're, you know, you're doing multiple experiments and you need to do some statistical analysis. You want to make sure that it's, you're comparing apples to apples. So just keep it consistent. And I think that would help folks. Great point. All right, so let's talk about standard deviation. That is last up in our topics for today. Um, Standard deviation, we sort of equilibrate that, I think, a lot to uncertainty. They're not exactly the same. We're going to talk more about uncertainty next week. But I'm going to throw this out. Maddie, you know, when I was taking classes, we'd always do a standard deviation at the end of the experiment of the lab or whatever to, you know, just generate. I was like, oh, our titration with a thousand plus or minus, you know, seven or whatever how are things going these days and how has your experience here been around standard deviation versus uncertainty? I will say they still do the kind of throw in the standard deviation. And at the end, like um, in our lab reports, they're like, all right, calculate the standard deviation. And you sometimes get into analysis of what that actually means. But most of the time you just throw it in the lab report and they grade it based on that. But here, I would definitely say there's a lot more focus on what the standard deviation actually means and what that is in relation to, like, the concentration of, like, a certain element and what that is in relative to the true value versus just throwing out, like, getting a number and then throwing out a standard deviation and being like, all right, that's what it is. But here, there's definitely more focus on the context of what the standard deviation means. Awesome. Brian, Leslie, I'll throw it out to you. What do you think of standard deviation versus, I know we'll sort of, we're going to leave most of uncertainty to next week, but just your general thoughts on just standard deviation only. 
Well, I, I guess what I would offer is that I had the benefit of generally having some quality control standard as part of my analysis. And so even if I had really bad standard deviations, you know, the data are noisy, the machine isn't perhaps optimized. If my quality control standard, which I knew really, really well, if I was hitting those numbers accurately, I didn't care too much about the standard deviation. And maybe for some purists, they might be like, oh, my God, how could you not care? But it was really coming back to this discussion of accuracy versus precision. I was far more concerned about accurate results, even if they were noisy, than really tight numbers that weren't close to the true value. Awesome. All right. Well, we hope you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivignite at inorganicventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 15 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss significant figures and uncertainty. We'll hope you join us then and have a fantastic week. Thank you.